Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the light of the world, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, so this is what it looked like 25 years ago uh, this coming uh, Wednesday. Uh, as we began this uh, journey together, uh, thanks to the fact that I got a little bit of uh, advance notice for uh, today's day of remembrance. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, once said that the road to happiness is found on seeking the happiness of others. And if that is true, this must be uh, the happiest church in the land for all the joy that you brought to me, to uh, our family over these uh, last 25 years, for which I certainly want to say thanks to God and thanks uh, to all of you uh, as well. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the fact that I've been in the one uh, place for so long in the same one uh, congregation does come with its challenges uh, for me and I know for all of you, uh, one of which uh, lies in the fact that I have preached on the wedding at Cana in Galilee six or seven times by now uh, because it comes up every three years in the church's rotation of uh, gospels during the season of uh, Epiphany. And yet I also know uh, that uh, many of you uh, obviously were not here for all of them. Uh, nevertheless, I do think about uh, a young man who is a uh, student in college actually right now, but when he was just maybe three or four years old, his grandfather brought him to the church office at our old location one day. And uh, when I was walking through to, to say hello, uh, the grandfather said to his uh, grandson, uh, Eric, can you preach like Pastor Mark? And uh, this little three-year-old kid starts waving his arms and saying, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, it's pretty accurate, actually. Uh, uh, that was Eric Jerome, for those who uh, happen to know him. Anyway, fortunately for me and uh, hopefully for you too, when it comes to uh, the scriptures, as I've said many times before, the d deeper you dig, the deeper it uh, gets. And it's also true that uh, sometimes you see something different, something uh, that's new to you when you read a passage because of what's just going on in your life uh, when you happen to be reading it. And so uh, today we go to the wedding again uh, in the context of whatever it is uh, that we're going through in our lives, whatever it is that's happening in our world uh, right now. And we ask uh, these questions that I often ask myself whenever I encounter a passage of Scripture, and that is, what's really going on here and why should it matter to me? Uh, because after all, John, uh, in today's passage, goes out of his way to tell us that the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding reception is the first of Jesus' signs, not just a miracle, but a sign, a signifier of uh, something else. This is uh, the beginning of Jesus' miracle-working ministry. This is the first thing he does, the first thing he wants us to know about him and about uh, what he's really all about, which uh, to me, you know, begs the question, why on earth uh, would the first of his so-called signs, as John calls them, have to do with keeping the wine flowing at a party? or even protecting a young couple from the embarrassment of having what would have been a days-long wedding celebration back then cut short because of it, which still, to most of us, I think, pales in comparison uh, to a context in which, you know, nobody was sick, nobody was dying, nobody had leprosy, nobody was possessed by a, a demon. I mean, is, is this really what Jesus wants you to know about him and about his ministry from the get-go? And there's some people who would actually say, well, yeah, that's exactly what he wants us to know. 
Because this passage reminds us that uh, Jesus isn't just concerned about the big things in your life. He's also concerned about the little things in your life. He's not just concerned about your survival. He's concerned, concerned about your joy and your, your celebration in life. Although, uh, truth be known, wine was actually about survival and not just about uh, their joy. First, because it was a sign of God's presence and blessing. And secondly, because uh, frankly, wine was uh, normally a lot safer to drink uh, than water, which was not purified, it wasn't filtered, it wasn't bottled, and it wasn't uh, nearly as safe as the water that you and I drink today. But the point is that Jesus is concerned about all of it, all of the details, and I agree with that. I think that's true, and I've preached that sermon, and yet it's not really what the passage is about. Other people uh, point to the words of Mary, you know, when she goes to the servants at the wedding and says, you know, do whatever he tells you. Uh, because Mary doesn't know what Jesus would do, but she knows he's not normal. And that reminds us that when we do what Jesus tells us to do, when we live by his words and promises, when we follow him in obedience, then good things are going to happen to us too. And I agree with that as well. I preached that sermon. But that's really not what it's completely fundamentally about either. And then uh, there, there are people who would say, well, you know, this is obviously about uh, Jesus' uh, encouragement and blessing and commitment to the institution and the covenant of, of marriage. Because when you go to Cana to this very day, you know, you'll, you will find a church there that is actually called the wedding church where uh, marriages and marriage vow renewals uh, take place literally every day including the day that we arrived there. I also got a call uh, one time uh, here at St. Andrew, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago from a woman who was planning her uh, wedding. And uh, she said to me, you know, I know this is a lot to ask, but is there any possible way that you would be willing to come and perform our wedding at a resort on the island of Antigua? said, you know, for you, yeah, I would even go to Antigua. And, and we did, we did. We went to Antigua and uh, the wedding took place, uh, you know, on this balcony overlooking the Caribbean right at sunset. I mean, it was so beautiful. I could have stood there and said, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it really just wouldn't have mattered. They were just all, all so happy. And, and while all that is true, even that, even that, you know, isn't fundamentally or at least primarily what the passage is about either. Well, what, what, what is it about that? What's this passage really all about? Why should it matter to you, to me uh, today when it, it does, on the face of it, seem a little frivolous in fact that, you know, nobody had leprosy, nobody was dying, nobody was possessed by a demon. And the answer for me comes in, in three places in the passage. And the first is the most obvious and the most important of all. And it has to do with the vessels that Jesus uses to perform this miracle. Some people think that uh, uh, the new wine was made when, you know, the, the water was poured into those great big jars from which the wine had given out and mixed with the sediment uh, that was at the bottom of the jars. And that's how the new wine was created, which is really kind of an interesting thought, except that is not what John tells us. John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus uses the jars that were there for the ritual 
rites and ceremonial required purification. The ceremonial washing that was commanded, that was necessary, that was required to take place for entrance into the banquet. Those are the jars, those are the vessels that Jesus uses. Because remember, in those days, your relationship with God, I mean, your religion was all about obedience. It was all about following the laws of religion. And so there were purification laws like this. There were clean laws like kosher laws. There were uh, laws about sacrifices and, and uh, offerings. I mean, it was all about those laws, all about what you had to do, what you were required to do. You couldn't just walk into the banquet. You had to do something in order to get right with God. And so when Jesus uses the jars from the purification to create this great miracle, he sends you a message. And the message, ready for this, is, is, is this. From now on, you're going to get into the banquet, not because of anything you're going to do or can do. You're going to get into the banquet because of something that I do. As he pours into those vessels representing, symbolizing that old law, having to do with guilt, with unworthiness, with being flawed, with being unclean. And he pours in this new vintage of, of festival joy so that those who follow him would be able to walk into the banquet without any shame. That's what I think the passage is really all about. And then there are couple of other places in the, in the passage that I want to zoom in on uh, today, which I haven't talked about in, in any of those other sermons, at least to my knowledge. And one of them comes before the miracle in verses 3 and 4, where Mary uh, goes to Jesus, her son, and she says to him, hey, this, this is disaster. I mean, you know, they are out of, of wine and implying that, you know, she wants him obviously to do something about it. And, and Jesus responds to her in effect saying to her, you know, why are you laying this on me? As, you know, sons will sometimes say to their mothers. And then he makes this statement, my hour has not yet come. Meaning what? Well, it means that, you know, Jesus is obviously thinking about the future. He's, he's thinking about something that's beyond the wedding at Cana, beyond the couple, beyond uh, the problem, beyond the emptiness that needs to be filled back up. And when you go through the New Testament, you find that phrase in, in other places. And what it means is what hour he's talking about is obviously the hour of his death. He's talking about his passion, the hour of his passion, his suffering, his sacrifice, and his resurrection, as if he is saying, yeah, I am here to take away their shame. I'm here to take away their guilt. I'm here to stop reminding them of that. I'm here to restore their celebration. I'm here to restore their festival joy, but I'm gonna have to die in order to do it, in order to free them from that law which reminds them of their flaws and their shame so that they can come into the banquet just freely and with great celebration and joy. I think that's what the passage is really fundamentally all about, even though all those other things certainly can apply. 
The other moment is uh, after the miracle in verses 8 and 9 where Jesus addresses this guy uh, who John refers to as the, as the steward of the banquet. Some translations call him the master of the banquet or the chief steward or the master of ceremonies. Today we would say uh, he's the banquet manager or he's the head waiter. And so sometimes when I meet people uh, for the first time and they ask me what I do for a living, I will say to them, well, I'm a waiter. Uh, which then creates some conversation and the chance to explain uh, to them what I really mean. And what I really mean is uh, that I wait on the greatest table on earth, in the finest place, uh, for people who I know and love and others who are guests, so that they can be part of the joy, so that they can be in the celebration, so that they can come to the banquet. And while all that is true, it's also true that when Jesus turns this water into wine at the wedding at Cana, you know, what he's really, I think, actually saying to us is, you know, I'm the master of the banquet. You know, I'm the one who came to be the servant of all. You know, I am the one who brings this new day to people and I use these vessels of this old covenant to pour in the wine of festival joy for people. That's why I think that matters to you in those moments when you just feel like you are empty or you are flawed or you are unclean. And then there's one other thing that actually is not in the passage, but it, it's in other passages in the scripture where God portrays himself to us, not as the master of the banquet, but it's the bridegroom himself. The one who comes to pledge himself to his bride forever in love. Because God wants us to have a relationship with him that is a love relationship. I mean, it's not just like a king and a subject, although that's there too. But it's, it's a love like a bride and a bridegroom, where the bridegroom gives everything he has for the joy and the celebration of his bride. And that is why we call Jesus the heavenly bridegroom. That's why we call heaven the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom that has no end, the banquet. That is why we call holy communion a foretaste of the feast to come. Because like the story at Cana, it's true for you and for me that in Jesus, the one who comes to Cana, the one who goes to the cross, the very best is yet to come. And we get to live that way and believe that way, even in a new year that's obviously off to a somewhat rocky start. You know, so a couple of months uh, before my dad passed away, uh, he and my mother got an invitation to the wedding of my cousin Sue, their niece and their goddaughter. And by this point, uh, you know, his health was declining rapidly. I mean, the curtain was coming down on his earthly journey. But one of the things that he said in response to that invitation, and he said it with great confidence, and I can hear him saying it, we are going to that wedding. And he said it repeatedly, and, and you know, that was his vision. I mean, he was thinking about something beyond his present moment. 
Well, it turned out that uh, his funeral took place about three weeks uh, before Susie's wedding. And yet the words, I mean, they just ring it in my ear, especially on days like today, because the truth is that he said something that was even beyond what he might have realized. Unless, of course, maybe he knew exactly what he was saying and I wouldn't put it past him. But the reality is, that whatever it is that you're facing in your life, whatever it is that is the emptiness or the trial or the sickness or the uncertainty or the anxiety or the humiliation or, or the embarrassment, here he comes to turn our mourning into dancing, to give us a sense of joy and celebration by the power of his grace and a reminder that he is with us in the big things and he's in the, with us in the little things. And that in him, the best absolutely is yet to come for all who live by his grace, follow his word. It has been a great blessing and honor to proclaim that good news to you and to wish you Jesus one more time today. Uh, along with the prayer that uh, while St. Andrew would always be a place of hope and a place of rest and a place of refreshment, that it would also be a place of great celebration and great joy for all of us here and for all those who have yet to come here and join this spiritual adventure with you and me. And that's the latest sermon on Jesus' first of his uh, signs uh, with one more reminder that uh, whoever you are and whatever's going on in your life this time around, Jesus Christ loves you to death. And because he does, we're going to the wedding. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.